Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. The New England Patriots are your Super Bowl 51 champions. We'll break everything down and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 54 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial Wednesday broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show on till the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. As fans of The Bridge know, we always start the show with sports news read like real news, the number one parody news anchor segment in sports radio. That will return next week, but we decided to do something a little bit different to start this post-Super Bowl 51 special. The city of Atlanta hasn't experienced the championship sports team since the Braves won the World Series in 1995. That's the longest drought for a city with three or more teams playing from the MLB, NBA, NFL, and NHL. Since 1995, the Braves lost the World Series in 1996. They lost again in 1999, both to the New York Yankees. The Falcons lost in the Super Bowl to John Elway in 1998 in Super Bowl 32. The Falcons blew a 17-0 lead to the 49ers with a chance to make the Super Bowl in 2012. And the Falcons had one of the worst collapses in Super Bowl history in their recent loss to the Patriots this past Sunday. In the five stages of grief, From the denial that Tom Brady was doing what he was doing to the anger that he was doing what he was doing and the bargaining of selling one soul to have that coin flip in overtime go the way of the Falcons, we've reached the fourth stage of grief, depression, a hard and painful depression. But someday, hopefully, acceptance will come. 
And to help speed that along, in this edition of The Drawbridge, let's go back to a happier time in Atlanta when there was hope of dynasties and brighter days. What was life like back in 1995, the last time Atlanta had a champion? Let's find out. Life in 1995. Along with the Braves, the 49ers won Super Bowl 29. Nebraska was your champion in college football. The Houston Rockets won the NBA Finals. UCLA was the NCAA Tournament champion. The New Jersey Devils were your Stanley Cup champions. And Pete Sampras and Steffi Groff were tops in tennis. The average cost of a new house was $113,000 and the average yearly income was $36,000. The cost of a gallon of gas, $1.09. The average cost of a new car, $15,500. Comparatively, the cost of a Super Bowl ad in 1995, $1,150,000. Cheap compared to today. One of the most popular movie quotes of all time actually predicted the Falcons' misfortune in Super Bowl 51. What the? Oh, my gentle Jesus. Houston, uh, we have a problem. Sorry, sorry, this is supposed to be a happy spot. Johnny Cochran showed us the importance of the right-sized glove, and the soup Nazi made his television debut. Michael Jordan returned to the NBA. Drew Barrymore table-danced for David Letterman and flashed him on national TV. The most popular TV shows were ER, Seinfeld, and Friends, while the biggest movies were Toy Story, Batman Forever, and Apollo 13, and let's also not forget Braveheart, which won Best Picture, Clueless, Pocahontas, Jumanji, Casper, Babe, and a summer movie for whatever reason considered a Christmas film, Die Hard. Your teenage crushes were listening to Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill album. More number one hits in the music world included Creep and Waterfalls from TLC, This Is How We Do It by Montel Jordan, Have You Ever Really Loved a Woman by Brian Adams, Kiss from a Rose from Seal, You Are Not Alone from the great Michael Jackson, Gangster Paradise from the even greater Coolio, Fantasy by Miss Mariah Carey, and of course, The Macarena by those two guys. Full House aired its last episode, and the final Calvin and Hobbes strip was published. The most famous celebrity to become paralyzed by a horse was Christopher Reeve. Is that too soon? The Grateful Dead announced their breakup, and Jerry Garcia then died. Other famous deaths included Selena, Eazy-E, Ginger Rogers, Dean Martin, and Howard Cosell. Famous births in 1995 included Andrew Wiggins, Jabari Parker, Olympian Gabby Douglas, and of course, Kendall Jenner. 
The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame opened in Cleveland, Ohio. Dolly the Cloned Sheep was born on July 5th and lived for seven more years. Windows 95 was released by Microsoft. The X Games were first broadcast on ESPN. Starbucks Frappuccino was released. Match.com was born. The George Foreman Lean Mean Grilling Machine was released as well. Your best Christmas gift in 1995? Pogs. It's not even up for discussion. Pogs. Time Magazine's Man of the Year was Newt Gingrich. Brad Pitt was named People's Sexiest Man Alive, perhaps in a possible upset over the then President of the United States, Mr. William Jefferson Clinton. 1995, what a time to be alive. Let's take a quick break to cash out our Super Bowl winnings. When we come back, we'll chat all things Super Bowl 51 with this week's guest. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text in your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into The Bridge. This week, we want to know, should we view Super Bowl 51 as the Patriots making one, if not the best comeback in Super Bowl history, or the Falcons making one, if not the worst, collapse in Super Bowl history? We'll talk more about that question and the main storylines of Super Bowl 51 with this week's guest in Tyler Dunn, who is an NFL features writer at Bleacher Report. Tyler covered the Packers for four years for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and got to hang out at Brett Favre's estate to talk about his retirement, and I'll attach that story on my website. It was an awesome piece. He was then a writer for the Bills for a year before landing at Bleacher Report, and his latest piece called Tom Brady's Latest Act of Greatness Was a Lifetime in the Making is a pretty fantastic look of how Brady got to where he is today from junior varsity football against Philly's legend Pat Burrell as his opposing quarterback to competing with Drew Henson in Michigan to taking over the Patriots job, and I'll attach that in my show notes as well. Tyler also got to hang out in Houston for Radio Row Week and got to stick around for Super Bowl 51, so it was great to hear his accounts and insight from covering that game. You can follow him on Twitter at Ty Dunn, that's T-Y-D-U-N-N-E. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Tyler Dunn. He's an NFL features writer for Bleacher Report. Tyler, thanks for joining the show. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks so much for having me on. Not a problem at all. We need someone to talk about Super Bowl 51 with and no one better than someone that happened to be covering it. Before we get into Super Bowl 51, you describe yourself as someone who enjoys a timely mid-90s NBA reference. So I have to (laughs) ask you for one to start this off. Oh, man. On the spot, just throwing out fastballs right away. I like it. How about that, right? You know, uh, that's 
I saw a couple recently. Um, one of my buddies was just texting me that he, he found a Brian Big Country Reeves jersey on eBay. So I guess that counts as a mid-90s reference. That is a good one. You know, when you got big country jerseys just kind of floating around, and you got to make uh, make those decisions. I mean, hey, I, I think he bought it. I think I told him to buy it. You can't pass that up. To continue the suspense for some Super Bowl chatter, let me turn the clock back a little bit first. How did you know that you wanted to be a sports writer while you were studying at Syracuse? You know, I, I kind of always have wanted to be a sports writer, I guess, back to, uh, to childhood. This is kind of all I ever really uh, – Wanted to do. Grew up in Western New York and started writing like at the uh, the hometown paper, the Olean Times Herald, with sports editor Chuck Pollock, uh, 15, 16 years old, and you know I just always wanted to be around sports, like most people. But uh, something about sports writing, sports journalism, just kind of pulled me in at a young age. So it, it was just kind of a no doubt about. I had to had to go to Syracuse. Uh, Wanted to get into Newhouse for a long time. Actually, before that, I went to St. John Fisher for a year. I uh, tried to prolong the football career at the D3 level, but uh, that was not not happening. I just wanted to eventually get to Syracuse for journalism and kind of took off from there. You know, Like everybody will tell you, that came from Syracuse um, in that field. You know, Writing at the Daily Orange, our student paper, really kind of made us um, covering all those teams. Bayheim, Doug Marone's first year as football coach across everything, uh, really prepares you. So, I don't know, kind of in a nutshell, that's how it all started. And, uh, yeah, worked in North Carolina, covered high school sports, uh, covered the Packers for about four and a half years, the Bills for a year at the Buffalo News, you know, to come back home to Western New York. And when this opened up at Leacher Report, the opportunity to do Enterprise, long form, exclusively, could not pass it up. I mean, this first year at BR has just been awesome. Love the kinds of stories that we're able to do. The people are fantastic. Colin McCullough, my editor, uh, working with the guys like Jason Cole, Mike Freeman, Mike Tanier, Doug Farrar, Matt Miller. I mean, the whole crew has, has just been phenomenal. So I just can't say enough about it. Well, I live 15 minutes away from where Jerry McNamara went to high school. So if there's a six degrees of separation, I guess that would be ours since he's oh, obviously my- well known in Syracuse lore. Oh, my God, exactly. That's interesting. I mean, that Big East run, uh, I think I was a senior in high school. I still remember trying to you know, sneak out of study halls and classes and get to the library. So they had a TV in there just to catch like th- those game-winning shots. I mean, it was one big shot after another all week long. And to watch that and while you're trying to go to class and all that uh, was something else. I got to do it right then. Like, I got to be around this. I got to cover this. And my gosh, covering those Big East games, RIP to the Big East, uh, was just uh, you know such an experience. And I, I remember there was one time, God, I think they were playing Georgetown at the Verizon Center, and I got John Thompson just sitting right next to me, you know, as a college kid, you know, with him on on press row. It doesn't Sweating. get uh, doesn't get any <laughs> more fun than that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Towel over the shoulder, of course. Absolutely. Taking it all in. You mentioned you spent four years covering the Packers, and one of the pieces from that from 2014 was called Brett Favre Found, which I'll attach to my show notes because it was a great read, which afforded you three hours or so at Brett Favre's 400-plus acre estate. So of the countless stories he told, let me add my hat into the ring here and ask you for one that sticks out if it made the story or one that may have not have. That's a really good question. Um, 
I'll go with uh, a story that, that didn't make the story um, and, and what, what an experience that was. I mean, because at the time, I mean, there was still a little, uh, not necessarily a cold war, but there was still some bad blood between the Packers and Favre. He was kind of going to sing Kumbaya that following year at the Packers Hall of Fame, but nobody had really gotten his side of the story and, and dove into his world quite yet. So, so fortunate that, that he opened up and, and gave us three plus, three and a half hours down there to just kind of hang out. So probably the number one story that's kind of sticks with me. You know, we, we pull up, uh, me and um, a photographer at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, we, we pull up, we're driving down his driveway. And when he first met him, he's, you know, this imposing guy, he's, he's ripped, he's got the veins down the biceps, all that. But he, he tried to make a connection right out of the gate. You know, that, that's just kind of how far it is. You know, there was no awkwardness at all. I mean, it was instantly he wanted to be like you'd known each other for decades, for years. And he just goes, hey, you know, where, where are you from? And I mentioned Buffalo. And he said that he, he goes hunting with Jim Kelly a lot, still does. And, and then he goes, where'd you go to college? And, and when I mentioned Syracuse, he just kind of lit up. He goes, oh, my gosh, you go, I have a friend out in Syracuse. You know, he imports black Russian boar, and we were hunting those things in the snow. They were standing out like cows, you know. <laughs> like, of course, Fred Favre has a story about hunting, I think it was black Russian boar in the snow in central New York. I mean, I guess there was never a doubt that Favre would have a story like that, right? Unbelievable. So you get to hang out in Houston before Super Bowl 51, and I'm sure that you've probably heard similar stories of a taking aback type of moment where you just would never expect to hear somebody telling this sort of thing outside of some of the mainstream stuff that we might have heard heading up into the game is there a story from either team or a player or even someone that you just happened to meet that sticks out for that experience? Boy, thinking back, it was definitely, definitely a blur. I know it just happened, but man, um, you know, I, I, kind of the most interesting things that I, I heard probably from the week are, are actually what, what made our story in Bleach Report on Tom Brady. And, you know, kind of going into it, I knew – I'd be doing a feature on either Matt Ryan or Tom Brady. I mean, those are the quarterbacks that day, you know, that day after the game, we wanted to turn around kind of a longer form story. So you figure that one way or another, one of the quarterbacks is going to be the story. So I, I just called as many teammates and coaches and friends and family as I could and ran into people around Houston in person, you know, some of the former quarterbacks and my God, Terry Bradshaw was, was just hilarious. I mean, there, there's one point where, He's at a table, and a lot of reporters are asking him questions. And, you know, he's literally getting asked about every quarterback in the league, and he's just shooting them down one by one. I don't like him at all. Jay Cutler, don't like him. <laughs> I told him, I told you, you got a beautiful wife. You're making all that money. Smile. Smile, man. So <laughs> that was pretty funny. But probably the most interesting stories really were, were on Tom Brady and just hearing his upbringing. You know, I think a lot of the stuff some people might have known sometimes the facts kind of get twisted over time and his, his good buddy, John Kirby, who was his receiver in San Mateo in high school, who tried to clear that up. But I mean, whether it's the fact that he didn't even play on his winless freshman football team to the JV team sprinkler gate, as he calls it, he's driving down the field to win in the JV championship against uh, a team whose quarterback was actually Pat Burrell, who ended up playing for the Phillies, obviously. And the sprinklers just turn on, 
The field's all wet. He can't handle the ball. Slips out, fumbles, they lose. You know, that, that kind of motivated him at a really young age. I mean, there, there were a lot of cool little things like that. And even in Michigan, um, I, I had never known just how much the coaches wanted to get Drew Henson on the field over Tom Brady. I mean, you knew that Henson was the highly touted recruit. But inside, I mean, all the teammates, all the players, and they knew that Brady was better. I mean, he, he was the starter. He was the guy day in and day out during spring ball, during the summer, showing up as the guy. And then his own coaches didn't even want him on the field. I mean, they didn't even want to give him reps at practice. So it was really interesting just to kind of see that this game, this moment, um, win another Super Bowl in the way he's did down 28-3 to coming back. It really was the, uh, the accumulation of an entire lifetime in football, an entire lifetime of you know, not even being good enough to, to play on his high school team because everybody thought he was too slow. So he, he spray paints the five-dot drill on his garage floor and does that all one summer to – to Michigan and trying to get shoved out there the entire time to the NFL as the greatest quarterback of all time. I mean, it's unbelievable, really. And I'll attach that as well. That's Tom Brady's latest act of greatness was a lifetime in the making. An excellent read. You had his former teammates texting you after the Super Bowl to get quotes from them. It was outstanding. So people should definitely check that. that out as well. So getting into the Super Bowl, let me start by getting into the hard-hitting questions right out of the gate. What did you think about Lady Gaga's halftime performance? <laughs> you know, I, I, I was skeptical. I think you're always kind of skeptical. What's going what's gonna to happen? I mean, is this going to be more of a, like, just kind of a, a politicized event? Is she going to do something crazy, like a, with a wardrobe that's malfunction? I mean, what's going to happen here? Well, that was fantastic. I mean, she rocked. Start to finish. I mean, yeah. I would have liked a little love game. You know, that's a good jam. Right. No shame. Love game is a solid, solid workout jam. Didn't get that, unfortunately. Probably for the kids. Can't can't have uh, those lyrics. You know, going coast to coast. But no, she she was she was phenomenal. I'm not even a Lady Gaga fan, really, and I, I thought it was great. And we didn't need Tony Bennett to have to come out and save her and maybe slow things down just walking to the stage. She was all there alone, fantastic, jumping off the stage, catching footballs. What more can you ask for? Real quick, too, in San Francisco or Santa Clara, I should say, um, in last year's Super Bowl with Coldplay, I remember sitting in the auxiliary press area, which is really out in the bowl, so you're not, like, behind glass, you know, in the press box, the normal press box. The atmosphere was dead, man. Nobody stood. Nobody cheered. <laughs> nobody gave two craps about Coldplay. So uh, it was nice to, for, for the people in the stadium actually there to care about Lady Gaga. Yeah, I love Coldplay, but I'll admit as well, I kind of put my head down while they were out there to just, <laughs> just kind know. of admit that this wasn't the best decision. Should Super Bowl 51 be viewed as the Patriots making one, if not the best comebacks in Super Bowl history, or the Falcons making one, if not the worst collapse in Super Bowl history? Well, I could take top out here and say it's a combination of both, but that's no fun. So I'm going to go with Patriots winning it. And obviously things have to break right for you. I mean, you're down 28 to three, you're doing double passes. You're going for it on fourth downs. You, you, you're you're in desperation mode. Um, things have to go right for you. But I, I really do think that it was more the Patriots winning it. I mean, you just had these unbelievable, unforgettable, Herculean kind of plays. I mean, Julian Edelman's catch is something we're going to be talking about forever. I mean, I, I really realistically think you can you can put that 
right up there, if not over, the Tyree catch. Definitely over the Manningham catch. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. And uh, Tom Brady, I, I'm sick and tired of the people out there who say he only throws five to seven yard passes and anybody could do it. I mean, get out of here. That throw he made. I think it was Danny Amendola late. It was like a 15, 20 yard out. He, I mean, he, it was like a sinker in baseball where it had some whistle on it and then it just dropped right in the bucket, right over DB's hands. I don't know how many quarterbacks make that throw. Goes into overtime, blood's in the water. I don't know. I mean, nobody in that stadium thought that the Falcons had a chance at that point because of Tom Brady. Uh, James White, I mean, you can go right down the list. The plays he made, the touchdown itself. I mean, he could have been stuffed at the one-yard line. Keeps turning his legs. So I, I really think there are so many of these little moments that add up that when you do that, it is more the Patriots winning this game than the Falcons losing it. Because also, I mean, let's not forget, if they went for it, they went for an onside kick, didn't get it. Julio Jones makes an incredible catch that we're also talking about there with, with Tyree and Manningham and all of that, and they overcome that. So, yeah, I mean, the Falcons, they, they shouldn't have thrown the ball after that Julio catch. They should have just ran it and kicked the field goal. But outside of that, I mean, this is the Patriots winning the Super Bowl. Absolutely. Was there a point in the game where you might have thought that the game was over? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I kind of thought it even in the first half when, when Robert Alford picks up Tom Brady and is going the other way with the way Matt Ryan's head offense was playing. I mean, they, they were unstoppable. The Patriots had, had no answer for them. Tom Brady not looking like himself, you know, in addition to that pick six. I mean, he was overthrowing some guys, too. I, I really thought it was it was probably over after that and definitely over when the Falcons came out and scored a touchdown on, on an early drive in the second half. So, I mean, we, I mean, we were definitely switching gears, thinking I'm going to be writing a story on Matt Ryan and really the world on realizing who Batty Ice is and what that means to – what does this do for Tom Brady's legacy? I mean, you think of all this stuff, but as it turns out, the Patriots uh, just did what the Patriots do. Yeah, you mentioned this is a team with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick throwing double passes. They score their first touchdown, and they miss the extra point. They kick an onside kick in the third quarter, and they don't even get right. it back. That really just tells you all you need to know about where this game stood is there a play that sticks out to you around that point as sort of the turning point of the game where you could almost get a little bit of a feeling that the momentum pendulum might have swung in the way of the Patriots? 100%. It's the Dante Hightower forced fumble. Um, when, when Matt Patricia drew that up and what a play call that was and give a guy like Patricia credit for, for staying in the moment. I mean, they, and the camera shots are on him throughout the game when they're getting pummeled, when Atlanta's doing whatever they want. And he just, he's got that pencil in the air. He, he looks so measured, stoic, just stays in the moment, made the correct adjustment, and that was one of them. Uh, he did, Hightower didn't, didn't backpedal into coverage. They, they got creative up front. He gets the sack, forces the fumble, and just like that, the Patriots are, I, well, I think it was 20 to 20 at that time. They got the ball back. I mean, so much happened. I mean, it's, Tom Brady said a lot of expletive yes. <laughs> in this game. I, that, that's the play, though, when it went from, oh, this is nice, the Patriots are making it a game, they're, they're not just going to get shellacked on national TV, to holy crap, they have a chance. Tom Brady has the ball. I think that the camera actually panned to Tom Brady at that moment. You know, it might have been 28-12. to 12. I'm getting it all mixed up. So it made it a two-score game, and they had hope. Right. Whatever the case, uh, 
you saw his eyes like he just went nuts. It was like he won the Super Bowl. I mean, the, the way he celebrated after that fumble, and they're still down two scores and need two two-point conversions. It was like he knew right then, okay, we have a chance. Here we go. Let's go march right down the field. So um, it, it definitely was a collective effort. We're all talking about Tom Brady, and rightfully so, but uh, he plays by the, the high towers of the world. Edelman, obviously. Uh, you can go right down the list, and um, that's what it takes. I mean, that, that's what it takes for, to win a Super Bowl. There's around eight minutes to go in the game. Atlanta is up 28 to 12, and they're still throwing the football. And I believe they had four possessions after leading 28 to 9, and that would include the one with 57 seconds left to go. But they ran the football just five times. They're snapping the ball with double digits on the play clock. It was almost like they didn't really know how to hold a lead just based off what they've done all year with having big leads and just being able to sling it and not have to worry about clock management. Even with head coach Dan Quinn on the sidelines, who should know about the importance of running the football and clock management Mm -hmm. after having to be on the sidelines two years ago, is there any explanation that you can give for the way the Falcons handled having that lead late and being so aggressive with their offense instead of trying to take time off the clock? Boy, all I can say is, and I'm not up in arms as much as as much as everybody on this. Yes, they they really should have just ran it on that that last one, especially just take the field goal, make it a two score game. It's over your champs. But Dan Quinn was also on the sideline for the 2014 NFC Championship game, and I just remember covering that for the Journal Sentinel still. And the Packers absolutely took their foot off the pedal in that game, start to finish. Um, they got down to like the one two yard line twice early in the game, on the road all the momentum and they kicked two chip shot field goals. And, and right when they're ramming it down Seattle's throws that they could have made that 14, nothing fast forward to the second half. They, they had the ball in midfield a couple times punted. They're up 19, seven with about five, six minutes to go. They just keep running it. They're trying to melt the clock, stuff, stuff, stuff. They, they let Seattle back into that game as, as miraculous as it was. And, and obviously everybody remembers Brandon Bostic on the onside kick, missing that. It, it really was about Mike McCarthy taking his foot off the pedal and not going for the jugular that game. So uh, that might've been in Quinn's head either way. I think it's important to stay true to your identity. If they really felt they could just bury the Patriots right there with whatever play they had called, because a lot of stuff can happen on a field goal attempt, you know, who, who knows that there was actually a play earlier. New England almost blocked an extra point. I think the, the touchdown that made it 28 to three. So anything can happen on a kick. Uh, if you, if you want to go for the juggler and you believe you've got the weapons, the Julio Joneses, the Taylor Gabriels, the Austin Coopers, the Muhammad Sanus, those two backs, you keep going for it. So I don't necessarily just – I'm not just throwing darts at Kyle Shanahan. There's a lot of darts being thrown at him right now uh, just, just because of I'll never forget that game. I'll never forget that NFC Championship game when the Packers had the team – to get to the Super Bowl, to play New England, maybe beat New England, an MVP quarterback, and they took the ball out of his hands. Atlanta didn't want to do that, and uh, it just cost them. Who do you think should take the biggest blame if you're an Atlanta Falcons fan, or is this another instance of where it's more or less a collection of several different people that should take the blame for something like that? Probably several different people. I mean, there should probably be an analytics guy or an assistant or somebody on the sideline who is crunching the numbers and is in Dan Quinn's ear telling him to tell Shanahan, somebody, you know, 
signal the alarms that just run the ball, you know, don't get too crazy at that point of the game. And because this is what the numbers tell you. I mean, the odds tell you that we will win the Super Bowl X, Y, Z, carry the two, if we just run it right here. Um, you know, that, that that person would have sure helped because they, they definitely operated more on instinct, which which I do kind of like there. So, I mean, yeah, you can, you can throw the blame all around. I mean, you know, for Matt Ryan to the coaches to the defense, at that same time, it is hard to blame the defense for being so worn out. I mean, New England ran, what, 93 plays to Atlanta's like 46, right. 47? Unbelievable. Um, but I, I think it's more of a collective thing for sure. To no surprise, the Patriots never quit. And I know this is a narrative being used that they never gave up. But to me, of course, they never do. That's just the Patriots way, as they like to say. But there were at least a dozen plays in that second half that had to go New England's way in order to have a shot at winning that game. If just one goes wrong, the game is over, pretty much, to make a long story short but they made all of those plays. In Super Bowl lore, I know we like to be prisoners of the moment talking about the most recent game. Where do you rank this as far as comebacks go, Super Bowl victories, even in the Patriots 5 with Tom Brady and Bill Belichick? Where does this stand among all of those? Man, it's number one in my my lifetime. Um, There's been some great ones. I mean, obviously you had the undefeated Patriots getting beat by the Giants. That just had the, the backdrop, the context, the, just an absolute stunner, a shock. I mean, that, it had all that. But the game itself wasn't that exciting start to finish. I mean, you had the Tyree catch, but up, up to that point, it, there really wasn't a lot going on. Um, same thing with their second Super Bowl against the Giants. The P- Patriots-Seahawks was an incredible game. As far as back-and-forth action goes, maybe a better game than this one. But, but even then, I mean, just – to be down 28 to three and the drama and what it took to, to climb out of that and the swing of emotions in the second half, I, I think this makes it number one. I mean, we, we haven't seen a comeback like that. And, and, and really you could say that's a greater comeback than the Houston Oilers uh, against the Buffalo Bills in, in 92. I know that was 35 to three. That's a wild card game. You had Jim Kelly in that offense. Just, I should say Frank Reich in that offense. Jeez. Oh man. Got a, get better at my history there um they had all those all those weapons but it, it was a wild card game i mean it, this is the super bowl it, to be down like that's the super bowl and to come back is, is something we probably won't ever see again what do you think the patriots defense was able to do to hold i think the eighth best offense in nfl history not only scoreless in the first quarter which you could argue because of the moment and the offense trying to find its footing but scoreless in the final quarter as well making the big plays to get new england the ball back without even having to get an onside kick i think the defense as well as how great tom brady is should be up in the storytelling of this game as well i think that you know they didn't i don't know if they necessarily just stopped atlanta and shut them down even contain them, but with the Patriots, with Matt Patricia, with Bill Belichick, it's always about dialing up that perfect call at the perfect moment. I mean, Malcolm Butler to read what he read at, at the one-yard line and to make that play, it won him a Super Bowl. For Dante Hightower to, to kind of circle around and get that sack forced fumble, it won them a Super Bowl. I mean, there, there's so many of these singular plays that just changed games for New England in all those Super Bowls that they've won, that you, you got to credit the coaches for yeah, being 
two, three, four steps ahead of the offense and, and kind of getting in their huddle, getting into their minds, and knowing what to call, and then the players themselves to buy in. You know, we hear so much, do your job, do your job, do your job. It, it's almost uh, cliched and you get tired of hearing it, but, but there's truth to it. I mean, if, if everybody does their job on that high tower play, if, if those other players eat up blockers like they're supposed to, take the exact step that they're supposed to, and Hightower is able to make that play, it, it's going to win you win you a game. So um, I think that's what it comes down to. Not necessarily just start to finish stopping and, 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 and shutting them down because Atlanta still scored, scored a bunch of points, um, did what they wanted to in the first half. But when it's New England needed to play, they made it. To close on some bigger picture things, you obviously got to spend some time around both teams in the week leading up to the Super Bowl as well as afterward. And starting with the Atlanta Falcons, as devastating as a loss as it was for them and Atlanta in general, having only won one championship in 1995, overall this team is pretty young, especially at its skill positions. They've got two running backs, 24 and 23, I believe, Julio Jones is is in his prime, and Matt Ryan is just 32, and I know not everyone can play until they're 39 and over, as Tom Brady might do, but big picture, what do you think will happen to the Atlanta Falcons down the road? We saw last year the Panthers had that Super Bowl hangover and didn't do as well as they had planned this past season. I don't necessarily know if that's going to happen to the Falcons. I don't know if they'll be able to get back to what they were able to do this year, in general, where do you think they can go now in the next couple of years once they eventually get over this loss? That's the troubling thing here. I mean, the NFL, every year is different. There's so much change year in and year out. You would think, you know, with Julio Jones, I mean, the best wide receiver of, the, of this generation, we, we haven't seen somebody this big, this fast, making these kind of plays. And with the Matt Ryan, the MVP quarterback, you would think that they're going to compete year in and year out. And I, and I think they'll make the playoffs next year, that they'll, they'll be a contender. But they, they're also losing Kyle Shanahan, you know, the offensive coordinator who really made this offense, it really took this offense from good to great this year. I mean, he was pushing all the right buttons. Matt Ryan's mastery of his system was, was evident. But they didn't just lose him. They, they lost, I believe, the quarterback's coach, too. Uh, just took a job with the LA Rams. So those are two really important pieces to that offense. And let's remember that they were able to stay really, really healthy. Most of this year, Matt Ryan had all of his weapons. They, they uncover a Taylor Gabriel who was cut by the Browns. I mean, they, they, they had almost a full stable weapons outside of Jacob Tammy getting hurt. So that kind of luck, I mean, do you, do you get that next year? Uh, it, it's going to be tough. I think to, for them to get back, to that game and that moment because there's just so many variables at play. Uh, st- still really like this team a lot, but it, it emotionally it'll be tough to get over this game. And and then just so many things can happen between now and then. The one thing I will say, though, Dan Quinn, they, they've got the right head coach to kind of keep them measured and to turn around. I and mean, you saw him the day after the game. He's already talking about putting this in the rearview mirror, which I don't know how you could even think about those words let alone say those words after the way they lost and I think it was Ricardo Allen said he's going to keep watching this game over and over and over again that sounds like torture to me but for this team I mean maybe they do find a way to move on from it just uh you're gonna have the Packers you're gonna have the Seahawks who knows maybe the Panthers are able to bounce back maybe the Buccaneers take a step there's just there's so many other teams that that could be uh in competition with the next season in the NFC 
So let me turn the tables a little bit and ask you the question that you asked some of the Patriots guys after the game. Why is Tom Brady the best quarterback ever? Well, it's, it's simplistic to just point to the rings, but he's got five of them. Uh, to me, what makes Tom Brady the best ever is that he has suffered these crushing losses like Atlanta just suffered. I mean, he, he's, he's had these losses. He, he lost to the New York Giants when David Tyree stuck a football to his head and, and Mario Manningham you know, had the tightrope catch along the sideline. He's, he's had playoff defeats. He's had hardship. He's had so much change around him year in and year out. And, and we're not even talking about future Hall of Famers. We're talking about David Gibbons and you know Kevin Falks and uh, Antoine Smith and even on this year's team. I mean, these are guys, Chris Hogan. I mean, the Bills didn't want Chris Hogan, and he turns in a 180-yard performance during the NFC Championship game. So to have all these moving parts around him, to keep coming back from these crushing losses, and to just become greater and greater and greater. And, oh, yeah, the NFL suspended him four games over a ridiculous, drawn-out legal process when they never actually proved anything. And, oh, yeah, his mom has cancer, was diagnosed 15 months ago. You have that weighing on you all year long. He's the greatest, man. I mean, I, I think that we're, we're witnessing something special here. So I guess I don't have to ask you the should Tom Brady retire question because I have a feeling where you stand on that. In regards to the Patriots in general, though, with Tom Brady expecting to have two more seasons, three more seasons. Who even knows at this point the way he's able to stay healthy and just compete at the high level that he's doing right now. Where do you see the Patriots going in the next couple of years? Is it safe to say that we might see them again next year in Super Bowl 52? Absolutely. You got Rob Gronkowski coming back as, as soon as he, you know, get stops partying and, and that, uh, the hangover wears off. We, we all <laughs> saw him just, you know, spiking beer cans and, my God, that was unbelievable. But you got the greatest tight end in NFL history coming back. That's going to help. You're going to have all these young players just be better. James White will be better. Deion Lewis will be better. I mean, he still has Edelman, Amendola, Hogan, Martellus Bennett. You know, we'll see what his future is. But they're only going to get better. And, and yeah, I think especially in that division, nobody really scares you there. And then the AFC in, in general. I mean, the Steelers, they had the best triplet combination in the NFL and they couldn't come close to going drive for drive with New England so yeah I just I'd be a lot more concerned about Atlanta getting back to that game than New England so we know we're sort of in a lull here as far as the National Football League is concerned until the combine comes around but as I mentioned to you before the show no one really circles the wagons quite like the National Football League when it comes to having things to talk about are there a couple things that you have that you're working on for Bleacher Report? Are you planning to just go away to somewhere really warm for the next couple weeks and refresh yourself before you get back down to it? Yeah, so, I mean, you're right. It it definitely does kind of switch right over into the combine, into the draft, to free agency, all of that. That's what the NFL wants. They want a year-round product, and and they really uh, structure their their NFL calendar that way. So, Actually, in the process right now, I'm kind of planning some off-season pursuits with my editor, and, and we'll we'll keep it humming along here. I'll probably take a, a few days here to, to recharge the batteries, but, but yeah, you can count on uh, some, some stories here uh, coming soon.
Looking forward to it, sir. Thanks again, Tyler, for coming on to the show. It was great to hear your insight from being at the Super Bowl and catching up on some of the work you've done in the past as well. Thanks again for coming on. Continued success. Keep up the good work for us, and maybe we can catch up down the road when we have more storylines to talk about as well. Hey, absolutely, man. Thanks so much for having me on, and it was great chat. Thanks again to Tyler for that great spot. Let's take a quick break to cash out our Super Bowl winnings. When we come back, we'll get into our movie segment, Five Minutes in the Film Room, and close out the show with good try, good effort. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. It's time for the second edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Kyle Cicilloni. Don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to go see these films, and we'll have a better idea of what will be in store for you while you view them. This week, Kyle will take a look at the film Moonlight, which according to Rotten Tomatoes is the tender, heartbreaking story of a young man's struggle to find himself told across three defining chapters in his life as he experiences the ecstasy, pain, and beauty of falling in love while grappling with his own sexuality. Moonlight received a 98% rating over at Rotten Tomatoes and will be a film that will most likely receive more accolades at the Oscars than even the New England Patriots have in the Tom Brady, Bill Belichick era. You can find Kyle on Twitter and on Periscope. He's at Kyle Cicilloni. That's K-Y-L-E-C-I-C-I-L-I-O-N-I. And you can find some of his work at ajazznetworks.com as well. That's A-J-A-Z-Z networks.com. Without further ado, here's Kyle Cicilloni with Five Minutes in the Film Room. Thanks, John, and welcome, everyone, to another edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room. I'm Kyle Cicilloni. By now, you're probably asking yourself, who is this guy? Who am I? Who am I? Who is you? That's the better question, though not necessarily grammatically correct. But it is a significant question, and in this case, certainly in the case of Barry Jenkins' newest film, Moonlight. We're almost at the end of the award circuit for the films of 2016. Moonlight has been doing tremendous, with 157 wins, 232 nominations across 76 film and critics award ceremonies, including eight Oscar nominations. Now, the Oscars, obviously, of course, are coming up at the end of February, and it would certainly be the frontrunner for Best Picture at the Academy Awards if it wasn't for a little film called La La Land. You may have heard of it. It's up for about four million Oscars this year. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not sour about La La Land. I'm fine with it. It's a fine film. I'd be okay with it winning Best Picture, but I think any other year, Moonlight probably deserves maybe Best Picture at least. Definitely a screenplay this year. Moonlight actually has an interesting setup. It's got a three-act structure, like most movies, but it's actually split into three separate parts based on the same character. So the first part is called Little, and that's what he goes by when he's a young child. The middle section is called Chiron, that's Act 2, and that's the actual character's name, and that's the name of the second act. And the third act is called Black. Now these will make more sense when you see the film. The three different actors who play Chiron, Alex Hibbert as the young Chiron, Ashton Sanders as the middle adolescent-aged Chiron, and Trevante Rhodes as the older Chiron. Very well done. Now, they look mostly the same, but their mannerisms and the way he kind of carries himself all translate across the board 
And it makes you very much believe that they're all the same character. Really well done. Not sure how they found these kids to do this, but bang up job. And obviously, Mahershala Ali and Nomi Harris are also in this movie. And I will talk a little bit more about Mahershala Ali in a little bit. This movie is really a story of self-discovery, a little bit of regret, and obviously some hope thrown in there. It's about being true to yourself, not forming yourself based on what others say. And that's really the central theme of this film. It's a simple character piece, meaning the plot is pretty straightforward, but it's very emotionally complex. This character certainly goes through a lot of issues throughout the film, from internal struggles of finding himself and trying to figure out how he fits into this world and into society, to also more surface-level things about dealing with his mother who's addicted to drugs, being bullied at school, just not fitting in, all these kinds of things. I think we can all take something away from this film in terms of that. And again, like I said, across the board, the acting performances all around are really phenomenal. Specifically, Mahershala Ali. He is amazing in this film. What he does in the first act of this film echoes throughout the entire movie. And that's something that you can't really say about a lot of other films. It's written well in order to do that, and also the acting has to be very precise. And that's something that they accomplish on both ends. Cinematography-wise, brilliant use of colors. Reds, blues, and yellows at specific points of this movie are used as not even subtle ways of, of showing characters and showing areas of the film thematically. It's right out in front of you, and obviously Moonlight is a thing. There's a story that the one character tells to him, but the moonlight, the reflecting off the moon, obviously casts a blue hue and tint and everything. The use of colors in this film is what really impressed me, I think, the most of anything. The score is really great, too. It's kind of an eclectic, dissonant score. It's got some classical music thrown in for the most part. There's some opera a little bit. It elicits a feeling of vulnerability, innocence, and obviously a lot of gloom, too. This character goes through a lot of things. It's not easy to watch. Now, maybe not as hard to watch as, let's say, Manchester by the Sea, but it's certainly hard to not get emotional over, to say the least. It's tragic, let me be honest, but it's optimistic, too. There's a lot of clashing inner voices, and that's part of the character's emotional journey. Now, it's not a perfect film. Some of the third act kind of does drag, maybe about 15, 10 minutes too long. Certainly doesn't take a clear stance on some of the central messages it's trying to portray, but it's still doing a great job. And again, it's nothing we really haven't seen before. I guess you could really compare this movie to a film like Boyhood a couple years ago. Now granted, Boyhood's a little bit more all over the place. This is certainly a better piece of film, definitely more cohesive. Now you're probably telling yourself, well, he forgot to tie in sports into this review somehow. Well, I figured after that ridiculous Super Bowl this past weekend that you could all do with a little break from having to hear about Tom Brady and the Patriots and Bill Belichick. Well, I'm here to tell you, you're probably not going to agree with it. You may not like it, may cause some controversy, but Moonlight may objectively be the best film of the year. Just like, whether you like it or not, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady are now the most winningest quarterback and coach in the entire history of the NFL. Yep. You've just spent five minutes in the film room with Kyle Cicilloni. Thanks for tuning in. Sexy. Check! Uh, check please. We'll close out the show with America's fastest growing sports segment called Good Try, Good Effort. Here we'll briefly mention some of the instances from throughout the week when a team or a player or a coach meant well but didn't quite meet those expectations. First up, good try, good effort to league MVPs also trying to win the Super Bowl, at least in this century. 
There's 10 players in NFL history who have won the MVP and Super Bowl in the same season, with the last coming in 1999, but it has yet to happen in the 2000s. Thanks to Matt Ryan, MVPs are now 0-8 in the Super Bowl since 2000, a list that includes Kurt Warner in Super Bowl 36, Rich Gannon in 37, Sean Alexander in 40, Tom Brady in 42, Peyton Manning in 44 and in Super Bowl 48, and Cameron Newton in Super Bowl 50. Sadly, good try, good effort to the Patriots haters. 31 records were either set or tied in this Super Bowl, with the majority of them obviously going in favor of the Patriots. The comeback in Super Bowl 51 was Tom Brady's largest in his career, including the regular season. Tom Brady has also played in 10% of the Super Bowls ever played. If there's any solace to that, Brady and Belichick might be 5-0 when they've faced teams named after animals in Super Bowls, but they are 0-2 against teams named after oversized monsters. Good try, good effort to those who may have gotten a little bit ahead of themselves for the Super Bowl result. Patriots superfan Mark Wahlberg pieced out early because his son was allegedly feeling ill. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady superfan Donald Trump left his Super Bowl party with the Patriots down 28-3. And Atlanta Falcons 74-year-old owner Arthur Blank left his suite after he was done dancing and high-fiving everyone around him to get down to the field a little bit early with his 26-year younger partner to celebrate the win that never did come. And lastly, good try, good effort to the Boston Globe, which delivered their early edition newspapers to homes around the country with a main headline that read, A Bitter End. That was just above a very large picture of Tom Brady missing the tackle of the pick six interception that he threw in the second quarter. The deathly perils of early edition newspapers. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can subscribe to The Bridge Sports Podcast on iTunes. Please leave a positive rating and review if you enjoyed the show. And by doing so, you'll immediately be notified when new episodes of The Bridge are posted each week you can also find the bridge sports podcast on google play soundcloud stitcher and tune in you can also visit londonbridge.com email to subscribe to the bridge newsletter which will provide weekly updates and behind the scenes information about the next show in the next installment of the bridge we'll dabble in the national football league chat about the nba and ncaa basketball take a look around the mlb and whatever else i happen to have up my sleeve on the bridge keeping you connected with all things sports
You can also find more ways to contact the show under the contact tab over on LondonBridge.com. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll have more chatter of Super Bowl 51 on The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.